liberal democracy is in trouble, not just in America, but around the world. Growing social and economic divisions, hypernationalism, and angry populism, media that favor discord over conversation, and even an attraction to authoritarian leaders. These and other challenges are testing the limits of our democratic institutions. If we hope to reckon with them, we need to understand the power of political myths. Welcome to the Hedgehog Chat, featuring conversations about cultural change in the modern world, brought to you by the Hedgehog Review and the Institute for Advanced Studies and Culture at the University of Virginia. I'm Jay Tolson, editor of the Hedgehog Review. And for today's chat, we will be talking to three scholars who have thought a lot about the use and abuse of political mythology. Professor Tae-Yun Kyung teaches political science at UC Santa Barbara and is the author of Plato and the Mythic Tradition in Political Thought. Professor Kevin Duong teaches politics here at UVA and is the author of The Virtues of Violence. Professor Isaac Ariel Reed teaches sociology at UVA and is also a fellow at the Institute. He is the author, most recently, of Power in Modernity, Agency Relations, and the Creative Destruction of the King's Two Bodies. Welcome to all of you. Just to get started, Taeyung, could you do the impossible job of pinning down what we mean by political mythology? So um, political myths generally are uh, narratives about political events or the political environment that are taken for granted, either because they're just so deeply ingrained into the background of our worldviews that we don't really think about them, or because they're just so pervasive. So this definition is obviously very broad, so it might include aspects of a social imaginary or what uh, I guess Pierre Bourdieu might call a doxa, but it also sort of uh, seems to encompass phenomena like conspiracy theories, even stereotypes or tropes uh, that we see in culture. So it's a very expansive definition. And uh, the broadness of that definition is sort of an interesting quirk in conceptual history, because why do we call all of these things uh, myth? And uh, that development came about in the Enlightenment when thinkers turned a critical eye toward mainly Greco-Roman mythologies, but also in conjunction with these new myths that they were encountering from the New World and non-European places that people were beginning to travel to. And what they uh, sort of saw was a kind of parallel between these rarefied classical inherited vocabulary of educated people in Europe. And all of a sudden they were seeing that seems to have parallel with these supposedly barbaric myths that are being found in civilizations that they considered more primitive than that of enlightened European society. So that's sort of where myth starts expanding as a concept rather than just as a kind of like traditional literary genre about like gods and fantastical tales. So that's when myth starts to become a kind of byword for what kind of uncritical passive mentality do people need to inhabit such that they generate and believe in these absurd stories. So that's the story of how myth came to be such a bloated concept. 
in specifically political uses, political myth does what, Isaac? Yeah, I mean, I think we're always operating with the two meanings of the term myth. One of them is the pejorative notion of myth. Myth is something that is not true. And we use the term to refer to fantasies that people are invested in that are basically false or something like that. Then there's the the concept of myth as, uh, I would say, a set of stories and figurations about the polity that are binding on future action. That is telling a story about saying what should be done. So if you take something very concrete, like the myth of voter fraud, and so in that sense, myth refers to something false, right? Um, but I was talking to Tayun yesterday, and she gave this you know, excellent explanation of how we can think mythologically about why people might continually be attracted to voter fraud as an explanation for why things didn't happen the way they wanted in an election, but it also refers maybe to like a background story that is taken for granted that makes that false thing attractive. So I would, I would point out that someone who risks a lot of people yelling at them and much worse to volunteer when they're not at work to count votes fairly, that person is, has a relationship to fact, how people voted. But I would say that that person also has a relationship to myth. They also imagine that they are part of a story of the civic order in which one has a deep responsibility, even if it's risky, to count votes. And I, and I guess what I would point out is like, we somehow have to have a way to think about that as myth as well. And I think the answer that I take from this serious work on myth that Tayun has done is it's not going to be enough to point out the falsities. There has to be some other story about what binds action and what causes people to do something tomorrow that they wouldn't have done today. And that story is partially going to have a mythological form. Yeah, uh, definitely. And I think what that invites us to reflect on really is um, you can't just like throw facts at people and be like, I want you to think like this. And now you should have a different worldview from the one you had before I gave you these facts. Whereas I think um, myths, uh, they're kind of like imagistic quality. They're, um, they're sort of familiar, repeated stories. So we, it, they already set a horizon of expectations and they strike at the imagination. And they're very great at accessing very, very th- thick and uh, conceptually foundational aspects of how we view the world. So like, what is the natural order? How do we think about nature? So these are some of the salient features uh, that I think make myth an attractive feature of politics. Um, In some ways, in the pre-modern world, political myth is a little easier to understand. So uh, would you describe very quickly what the king's two-body mythology is? Right. So in late medieval and early modern Europe, there's this expression that we've all heard, the king is dead, long live the king. And so everybody already knows the kind of legal theory of the king's two bodies, which is just that, you know, the king is a mortal person who has flaws and will die, but the king also has a separate sacred body that goes on forever and contains the whole political community. So 
this at a certain point was a, a legal doctrine. But, but in a more general sense, the king's two bodies is just a kind of form of political fantasy. That helps with the figuration idea of myth. I mean, what does the fancy word figuration really mean? It means that when you're trying to imagine a political community, you do so not just by counting the people in it or imagining how people in it should behave via a set of abstract rules, but you sort of imagine a figure who stands for it. And um, at least in the Age of Kings, this is an important fantasy in in late medieval and, and, and early modern European politics. And once we realize that most stories about kings involve not just rules, but some notion of how they went from being a bad person to a good person or how they heroically won a war, then we realize that the whole politics of the monarchy is bound up with what would be recognizable as mythological tropes. And then we come to the complicated period of modernity, and democracy uh, itself seems to require certain kinds of political myths to provide cohesion, direction, we the people, and the Constitution, and the Bill of Rights. These acquire a kind of mythic force as well as legal. Would you say that this rise of the new sort of democratic mythic introduces a rather unstable mythic? Isaac? Yeah, I mean, I think it's tricky, but I would say that the modern moment actually has the myth of revolution. And that myth is a very complicated and contradictory thing that enters into the space because when the revolution itself takes on a mythological character, then then there's a kind of attraction to the chaos of revolution itself. And I think that that's one of the places where volatility comes from. We see references to revolution all the time. There will be a second American revolution if if people come to take our guns. There, you know, there, we, we need a new constitutional convention to secure rights. And if we think of modern politics as this rewriting and this attempt to produce new and compelling myths, the fact that revolution is a myth itself is a kind of weird, obscure kernel at the core of, of modern politics. There's always this possibility that the chaos itself is the thing that's mythologically regulatory, and that just seems fundamentally weird, but to me, fundamentally true about the modern era. Ateon, what would your take on that be? The latest sort of crisis in thinking about myth was during the Nazi period, because you have these Nazis going around inventing new modern myths uh, about, you know, like a kingdom that will last a thousand years, this, uh, these chosen race of people who have a very particular destiny. And people thought, okay, this is what myth and modernity looks like. That's horrific. And as people were reckoning with that legacy, and they pointed the finger back to the German idealists, these guys who had this very utopian vision of, wouldn't it be great if we had a new mythology for the modern age? That, okay, like that was the vision that the Nazis fulfilled. Are you happy now? But if you don't point the finger directly at the German idealist necessarily, it definitely uh, was in the air. And you could perhaps think of the, the Nazi project as a particular misinterpretation of a more utopian vision that had been trickled down through some of the other cultural nodes that, that you mentioned. Who are some of those German idealists? They all have names that begin with Friedrich Schur. So, <laughs> yes. <laughs> so, um, Friedrich Schelling, Friedrich Schlegel and his brother August, Friedrich Schleiermacher, the poet novalis uh, Hürdelin, 
something else is that we seem to know kind of like psychologically that the myths that people are attracted to are often myths that provide a kind of consolation. So accounts like the world makes sense. The world is not a hostile, indifferent environment to you. You are a part of the world. You are an important part of the world. Uh, you are the hero of a story that is being unfolded in a space that is greater than you. So these are the kinds of narrative patterns that people seek. And you can imagine variations on narrative templates that provide the kind of psychological consoling uh, features that make myths attractive that don't necessarily have to be pathological. But it's um, just that in the absence of very clear examples of uh, democratic myths that are like that attractive, we just see a lot more examples of kind of like extremist unsavory myths that do seem to scapegoat other people or uh, like define one's centrality in one's world against the uncentrality of other people sharing the same space. Exactly. Um, I mean, I, I think, Kevin, um, there seem to be recurrent crises in the democratic mythic there is a very telling one in pre-World War I France that you have written about. Sure, yeah. Um, the funny thing is that there's actually a lot of analogies, I think, between the pre-World War situation in France and perhaps today, in fact, the issues with conspiratorial thinking. Before I get into Piki, the thing I'll flag from Taeyun's comment, too, is I do think mythic thinking both before World War I and now responds to this very recognizable problem that we have a difficult time accepting that things can happen in politics, but without there being a concrete agent behind it. One of the things that conspiracy theories provide consolation for is that there must be an agent behind the thing that happens. It can't possibly be that things just rolled out this way. So you brought up earlier about whether anxieties about voter fraud are particularly about, you know, who is and is not part of the people. I think that's one part of the answer. The other part of the answer is that people are looking for an answer of who could have caused this result that according to the, everything else I know about the world shouldn't have happened. There must be an agent behind it. This is exactly, of course, what drives the anti-Semitic scapegoating of Dreyfus before World War One. So for those who are listening, Piggy's, this I think is a good poet, but, you know, your mileage may vary who starts out as a Dreyfusard, but invokes the concept of myth partly to articulate his frustration with the fact that what was supposed to be a case about securing justice for someone who is falsely accused was quickly co-opted into parliamentary politics. And Piggy looked at that and thought, wow, is it really the case that in parliamentary democracy at the beginning of the 20th century, morality simply has no place? It's realism all the way down. It is about who wins a particular battle. And he specifically invokes the concept of myth to say that once democracy, and well, in his case, the Republic, cared about justice, it had a mythic heart to it. But now that it's been fully rationalized, what that really means is actually that democracy has become amoralistic. The true culprit of democratic degeneration are amoralistic politicians who are not guided by a moral compass, but guided by a self-interested parliamentary considerations. And I think you absolutely see echoes of that today. There's a similar anxiety about if you have a democracy without a mythic structure, are you really just talking then about petty interest politics, because in that case, what actually is the normative value of democracy, unless it is in fact tethered to an ethical worldview, worldview that is able to establish foundational values and a clear sense of accountability between actions and agents. 
absolutely. And uh, it, it, that's a, a very well-explained point, I think. Uh, and it sort of connects your project in your book, Taeyun Kyum, with where we are now in contemporary politics in some ways, is that you argue that Plato has uh, an appreciation of political mythic that he sees as crucial to his arguments. But Tayum, would you would you run with uh, the question of what we can learn from Plato? Yeah, this goes back to the earlier point, the narrative that I kept mentioning about, like modernity is about leaving uh, behind myth, uh, is a view that has been attributed to Plato, and Plato has, uh, from the Enlightenment onward, been viewed as a kind of original champion of that movement. So this, I guess, technically pre-modern philosopher who set the foundations of modernity by putting philosophy on this rationalist track. So he like wrested uh, critical thought and rigorous thinking and invented a new standard of uh, what it means to think philosophically by wresting it from like the, the grips of myth that had pervaded Greek culture in his time. But he embedded myths of his own invention into uh, these dialogues. And I think uh, part of what's going on there is a philosopher who's pursuing a very rationalist project in in some degrees, who uh, is also uh, playing around with and recognizing the importance of myth for uh, political theory. I wonder, to, to, to conjecture a little, do we see great mythographers, uh, political mythographers on our scene today um, in the way that, say, FDR, and uh, who, who could sort of conjure up this kind of uh, national purpose around very effective language and, and occasions, fireside chats and uh, the New Deal and... Um, if I might just quickly add, Jay, I was struck that you picked FDR because I would have thought, at least in the American context, the more obvious example would have been Reagan. Well, I'm glad you said that because I was going to come back to that. I was going to say, in my lifetime, the political mythographer that first excited me was John F. Kennedy um, because he did connect with a lot of other filmic and popular culture themes and his manner of rhetoric. But undeniably, Reagan was a <laughs> tremendous mythographer, political mythographer. I mean, he fought in World War II in a film, but, you know, people believed th that this was the reality. I mean, his merger of sort of mythic themes and politics was tremendously effective. I mean, he had a very a successful presidency. I mean, we can criticize what programs and things he did, what ideas he introduced, what policies he introduced, but uh, it was by most measurements a successful presidency, and it worked strongly on mythic terms. Um, but uh, Taeyun, you, you had a point on that, I think? Yeah, sure. So I think 
I guess when we talk about like who are like the the political mythographers we should be paying attention to today, I think one, especially in a kind of like democratic context, uh, one thing that we should break out of is thinking about myth as uh, being solely a tool for the political elite. So uh, this idea that myth is something that's sort of like passed down from political elites who sort of like intuit the power of myth and know how to like manipulate it for their own uh, instrumental purposes, uh, which has often been sort of like the stereotype of myth. And the democratic theorist response to that is like, no, we are going to be principled, rational citizens who are rational enough to see through the manipulations of politicians and we're going to create a more uh, rational democratic order. And I think there is a sort of like mythic analog to that project where it is possible for us to think of uh, myth as a more organic bottom-up project that involves sort of like everyday citizens. So when you um, uh, pose the initial question of like, who are the political mythographers today? It's the thing that came to mind uh, for me immediately was not particular politicians, but actually activists who also very much intuit the power of myths and narratives and and sort of like know how to channel it for kind of like new, often progressive ends. Um, so the activism around the Dakota Access Pipeline, so these like protesters were all kind of like Native American communities came together and they drew on kind of like their uh, tribal mythological traditions to reframe their project as something that was meaningful to them, but also uh, imparted a, a new kind of significance to what it was that they were doing. So um, the corporations were like dismissing them as like stray protesters who are getting in the way. And they're like, no, we are not protesters. We are water protectors. And that is the significant role that our ancestors has imparted. And it's like a tradition that runs through what it means to be part of uh, my tribe. It's it's like a way of tapping into a traditional mythological tradition to kind of like reframe and give significance uh, to, to a new project. And I think those are the kinds of myth-making that we should be paying more attention to. Um, I, we should be paying more attention to them. Uh, I don't want to end on a negative note, but obviously an event that has already acquired mythic dimensions is the January 6th invasion of the Capitol. And Kevin, I wonder, are we already seeing the mythologizing of that event as one part of a kind of attempt to claim the democratic mythic? I think that might be right. Maybe another way of tackling that is I'm struck by the impotence of critics of the January 6th events to counter it as a myth. And I wonder whether that, and this draws many things that we've just been talking about, is because of the unbelievable commitment of countering it with just reasonable arguments or accumulation of facts, but a total inability to retell the significance of that event. Um, and there's there's something to be said about... Um, For me, I mean, the funny thing um, that I kept thinking about during our whole conversation is that I'm not even sure 19th century positivists thought you could get away from myth because even Auguste Comte ends his life endorsing a church of positivism or something like that. In fact, the pathologies or the anxieties about myth, I think of as a distinctly Cold War phenomenon, an attempt to consolidate a particular vision of liberal order in opposition to what it thought was the excessive mythological elements of both communism and fascism. And I think what we're seeing now, which January 6th makes so clear, is that that actually neutralized and made even possibly impotent 
those who would want to counteract resurgent forces of nationalism and xenophobia or something, that the ideological structure that came out of the Cold War anxieties about Nazi mythology robbed us actually of any effective weapons. So even if January 6th was so obviously an invasion of a capital, why do we have such a difficult time um, offering an alternative framework for understanding its significance than just saying, you know, having endless hearings that try to bring forward more first personal accounts about what happened during the events, um, which seems like combating at a totally wrong level, um, I think. Well, I think what you've done in, in those remarks is to sort of set the challenge for our time. Is uh, and, and, and all of you have helped, I think, illuminate the terms of the, of the problem in a much broader way than a, a rather dry analytical approach um, or emphasis. So I, I, I appreciate the work that all of you have done. Taeyun Kyum. Kevin Duong, Isaac, Ariel Reed, I want to thank all of you for being with us today. This Hedgehog Chat is brought to you by the Hedgehog Review and the Institute for Advanced Studies and Culture at the University of Virginia. Please go to hedgehogreview.com to find recent issues and to read our web features. This episode has been produced by Kyle Edward Williams, Jane Little, and is edited by Mary Garner McGee. It is a production of the Virginia Audio Collective at WTJU Charlottesville. Thank you for listening to the Hedgehog Chat. I'm Jay Tolson.